0: Thank you. All right. Good morning. So this morning is is going to be more of a teaching for the head. And next week, I will do a little bit more of a preaching to the heart. But we're also going to do something special this morning, um, which we do every once in a while, which is um, if you have any questions in the midst of the teaching, um, just hold on to them because I'm going to take, I'm going to field a few questions at the end. All right. Um, we're going to start in prayer, uh, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's do this together. And I want to just invite you. Um, maybe you don't normally cross yourself. I want to invite you to cross yourself with me in prayer this morning. And uh, it's a way of binding the holy. Uh, it's a, a way of binding the Holy Trinity upon yourself, upon your very body when you pray. And if you think about it, all the symbols uh, speak some sort of truth about the Trinity, right? So when we say in the name of the Father who the scripture said is the head of the Trinity, the Son who came down from heaven and was incarnate in the earth, and the Holy Spirit whose love binds all things together. Amen? So let's pray together. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, God, would you reveal yourself this morning to us as you truly are. Lord, we stand baffled and in awe like Moses at the burning bush, like the confused Pharisee Nicodemus like ourselves, just saying, please show us yourself, Lord. We long to know you. And even if we can't understand you, would you draw us into communion with yourself this morning? Amen. Amen. So yes, once every year on the liturgical calendar is Trinity Sunday. In other words, it's that, it's that special day of the year when preachers are most likely to step in it, and say something accidentally heretical. (laughs) So in all seriousness, I, I do think the topic of the Trinity is intimidating for all Christians. It humbles us because we know that God is infinite, right? Infinite, and our minds are finite. Just as a stream cannot rise higher than its source, so we as creatures We'll never be able to truly fathom our creator, right? At least not on this side of heaven. But sometimes I think we're afraid of this topic or perhaps even ashamed because we confuse mystery with absurdity. We fear the Trinity involves something like a rational contradiction equivalent to believing in a square circle or to believing that three equals one in a mathematical sense. And therefore, we fear that acknowledging the Trinity toward outsiders is like throwing our brains in the trash can publicly. But brothers and sisters, we know there's a difference between something being irrational and something being what the theologians call ineffable can we say that together ineffable ineffable all right that's not a common word so it'll require some explanation when something is irrational right it contradicts human logic but when something is ineffable it transcends human logic Again, when something is a logical contradiction, we mean that it's by definition impossible, like a square circle or like a mountain that both exists and doesn't exist at the same time. But to say that the Trinity is ineffable, vast and glorious beyond all comprehension is to affirm that God exists in a different kind of way than we do, right? There's no perfect referent to the Holy Trinity in all creation. And we can use words, Right, and we can make analogies, and I'll mention a few today, but they necessarily fall short. As Jesus just put it in John 3, If I have told you of earthly things, and you have not understood, how then will you understand if I tell you of heavenly things? C.S. Lewis elaborates on this point by comparing two-dimensionality with three-dimensionality. He says flatlanders attempting to imagine a cube would either imagine six squares coinciding and thus destroy their distinctness or else imagine them set out side by side and thus destroy their unity. And he concludes that our difficulties about the Trinity are much the same kind. Now it's true that human beings are created in God's image, but friends, we're not tri-personal beings. We don't exist outside of time, right? We're not pure spirit. We're not infinite. We're not transcendent and completely other. God is. And so with Moses at the burning bush, we are left to proclaim, God is who God is, right? Right? To acknowledge that God is triune is actually a call to awe, a call to worship, a call to remove the sandals from our feet for the ground we're standing on is holy. And to know that we are dealing with the ineffable, not the irrational. That is, that God is timeless, spaceless, single, lonely, yet divinely three. Oh, thou art grandly always only God in unity. The hymn writer continues only to sit and think about God. But oh, what a joy it is to think the thought, to breathe the name. Earth has no higher bliss. A couple of years ago, I was at a park in Tallahassee with a very astute Muslim friend of mine, and he asked me to explain the Trinity. And uh, this guy's real bright. They have him teach in the mosque sometimes. And I was like, okay, I guess we're going there. (laughs) And I told him, all right, um, well, like Muslims, uh, Christians believe that there's only one God. We don't believe in three gods. And I said, however, we believe that the full truth is that God exists in a way that's distinct from everything else in all creation. That God eternally exists as one being in three distinct persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the Father is fully God, and the Son is fully God, and the Spirit is fully God. Now, you guys may know that the Quran speaks directly against the Trinity, Um, and so this question was a little loaded, right? And uh, also, the Quran seems to be confused about what Christians believe and kind of smuggles Mary in there, Um, so I explain that by persons, we don't mean human people. Right? We, don't mean, we don't mean Mary, we don't mean a human father, but instead that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all personal, meaning they're not simply forces or powers. The persons of the Trinity have a will, and that they have existed in unity with one another from all eternity. And so he asked, well, how can three persons share one nature? And one thing that seemed to be helpful for him uh, was that I pointed out that he and I were two persons that shared the same nature, a human nature. Um, only difference was that we're separate beings, whereas God is a three personal being in one nature and one being. In fact, um, I drew this picture for him that some of you guys uh, may know, and I've always found it to be helpful, so let me share it with you up on the screen. All right, this is helpful. Um, Because in Holy Scripture, the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. But the Father is God, right? The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. So these are three distinct persons in one being. Now, going back to my friend, at this point in the conversation, it seemed that I had clarified some things, but his main critique was that it all, it all just sounded too complicated. Uh, so I tried an analogy on him. We were sitting by a lake, and I said, imagine that you tried fitting this entire lake into a bucket. Right? That's what it would be like trying to fit who God really is into our finite minds. I said, in fact, it would be even more vast. It would be like the ocean or bigger. And then I took a risk to challenge him a bit. I said, if our concept of God is so simple that the human mind can comprehend it, then don't you think it's likely that it was invented by the human mind? And that seemed to be the thing that I said that got the most traction with him, although the rest of our conversation had to wait for another day. And again, this is what we mean when we say that the Holy Trinity is ineffable. Our inability to comprehend the nature of God is about the limits, right, of our own finite minds not about any deficiency or defect in God. The Trinity is a mystery to us because it's not a man-made idea. It doesn't have that kind of ring to it, does it? In fact, we may speak of like man-made lakes, but no one has ever heard of a man-made ocean, right? It's more like that. It has that peculiar ring to it that... It has when Moses, when the Lord says to Moses through the burning bush, I am who I am. Tell them, I am sent you. The Trinity is the way that God has revealed himself in creation, through the incarnation of the Son, through the sending of the Spirit, and through the God-breathed scriptures. And biblical examples abound, right? In the Great Commission, Jesus commands us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name. Notice the name, not the names, plural, but the name. Because we're talking about three persons in one substance, of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Likewise, at Jesus' baptism, we see all three members of the Holy Trinity accounted for, right? The Son of God is being baptized. The Holy Spirit is descending upon the Son in the form of a dove. And the Father is saying from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. St. Augustine liked to talk about the Holy Spirit being the love that binds together Father and Son, but it's so tangible, it's so manifest that the love is actually another person, right? And we see that going on even in Jesus' baptism. The Father is saying, this is my beloved Son, and the way that I express that to you is actually by sending my Spirit to you, right? Right? And that's similar to us, right? Because in the book of Romans, it says the love of God has been shed abroad into our heart by the Holy Spirit. Or in our gospel reading today from John 3, we see the Father sending the Son out of his love for the world. The Son being lifted up on the cross to offer eternal life and the Holy Spirit giving us new birth from above. Think of the blessing that the Apostle Paul pronounces at the end of 2 Corinthians in verses Uh, Chapter 13, verse 14, he says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. In these and other biblical texts, the doctrine of the Trinity is a clear and explicit teaching. Moreover, there are actually hundreds of other examples where the Trinity is taught implicitly. In other words, it's assumed to be true by the biblical authors, or it's sort of like lurking in the theological background behind all their words. Now, you've noticed this before if you've read scripture, but grab a Bible, if you would, and turn with me. I just want to show you a few examples, because it's just easy to just breeze by these things. And turn with me to page 959. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And here we find some of the clearest teaching in the New Testament on spiritual gifts, often referred to as gifts of the Spirit. But notice in verses 4 through 6 of 1 Corinthians 12, 9.59, let me just give you a moment. Here we see in verses 4 through 6 that spiritual gifts are actually attributed to all three members of the Trinity. Right? It says, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, right? That's what we're expecting to see. There are a variety of services, but the same Lord, that is the Lord Jesus. There are a variety of activities, but it is the same God, that is God the Father, who empowers them all and everyone. In other words, the gifts of the Spirit could equally be referred to as the gifts of the Trinity. And we find this kind of divine overlap in other places. Turn with me, if you would, to page 901 in John chapter 14. John chapter 14 and verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And of course, this is what we just celebrated last week at Pentecost Sunday. But if we scan down to verse 23, Jesus mysteriously adds, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we, that is the father and the son, we will come to him and make our home in him. So is it that the Holy Spirit indwells us, as he says in 15 through 17, or that the father indwells us or the son indwells us? According to Jesus, the answer is yes, now, often in scripture, the persons of the Trinity are referred to almost interchangeably with little to no warning. Uh, as an example, in Matthew 10:20, the Holy Spirit's called the Spirit of your Father. And then in Acts 16, 17, the Holy Spirit is called literally the Spirit of Jesus. So what are we to make of all this? In this commentary on the book of Acts, 20th century biblical scholar Richard Rackham notes that while the Trinity is not set forth systematically in the Bible... It is implied throughout, and without it, the mutual relations of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit would be inexplicable. Right? So, I would say amen to that. I would only add that this principle is not true just of Acts, but throughout the New Testament. I could say more, but I had to cut myself off at some point. Just suffice to say, this is not some sort of parenthetical doctrine. It's the very heart of the New Testament. But if this is so, if the Trinity is such a clear doctrine in Scripture, then why does the Church call it a mystery? Let me give you three reasons as a way of summarizing, and then I, I want to open it up for a few, few questions. If we go away understanding the boundaries of this doctrine a little bit more this morning, uh, it'll be a morning. Uh, it, it'll be a. Um, it, it will have been worth our while, I think. So. Um, the first reason why we call the Trinity a mystery is something we've already mentioned, which is that God is by nature ineffable, right? So we elaborated on that for a while. The second reason, which we already began to address here, is that um, the Trinity is a mystery in the sense that the tr- uh, knowledge of the Trinity re- requires self-revelation from God. It's not something we can just come to just from examining nature or thinking really hard. This is what Thomas Aquinas said. He he thought that knowledge of God in in the more general sense um, could be discerned through philosophy and through the nature of things, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.20. But specific knowledge of the Trinity is not like that. Since there's no earthly referent to the Trinity, there's nothing in the world quite like the Trinity. Knowledge of this kind depends upon God's direct revelation and therefore It is a mystery. A third reason why we call the Trinity a mystery is because even in Scripture, the fullness of this truth is something that God slowly reveals to his people through the fullness of time. Right now, if you've been going to this church for a while, you've seen us um, try to reference the Trinity from the Old Testament at several times and in various ways. But it's never super clear in the Old Testament, right? We can be honest about that. There are hints but it's never made explicit until much later. Now, um, uh, St. Irenaeus has an explanation for this um, that we could call the divine pedagogy method. So God is, uh, according to Irenaeus, and and mind you, Irenaeus is, is a very early church father. He was taught by Polycarp, he was taught by the Apostle John. So we're talking real early on here. And he's saying... The reason why God becomes more clear about who he is as revelation goes on is because he's sort of like leading us by the hand along the way. So in the old Testament, he first wants to establish the oneness of God in a polytheistic world in a pagan world. And he wants to drill into his people's mind that the Lord is one and that there is no God beside him. So the Lord is trying to teach us monotheism and then later reveals the Trinity. Now, we could say, well, that's, that's kind of confusing. Um, why doesn't he tell us right away? Even Jesus says t- a- a- at one point, right? Um, I have much to say to you more than you can now bear, right? But why doesn't God reveal his triune nature right away? Well, think of it um, the way that a parent teaches their child about the sun. okay? So let's just say you have a two-year-old, a three-year-old, and they say, you know, dad, mom, where does the sun go at at night? And you could say to your child, well, The sun goes to bed just like you go to bed, right? And that might be an appropriate thing to say to a two-year-old. And a a few years later, they say, hey, where does the sun go at at night? You say, well, it it starts on the eastern horizon and then goes all the way to the western horizon, and then it comes back around the world. And, you know, that might be an appropriate thing to say to, you know, a five-year-old. You know, a little later on, you're going to tell them, actually, the sun isn't going around the world right? We're revolving around the sun and the earth is spinning. We could get Maybe later on in their life, you could say, all right, um, here's this book by Stephen Hawking. I've told you about as much as I could tell you, right? But at each stage, the truth is revealed at a new level that's appropriate to the child's development. And Irenaeus says, this is what the triune God does. He reveals himself to us in a way that's appropriate at each stage of our development. Now there's much more that I can say more than you can now handle, (laughs) but that's just because of length, not because of development, Um, but I do want to open it up for just a few questions since this is a bit more of a teaching heavy message. Yeah, Michelle. Yeah, uh, okay, so um, she asked about the Holy Spirit binding together the Father and the Son and, and, and the implications of that for the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Um, just wanna say, um, again, I, I reference uh, St. Augustine or St. Augustine um, on that teaching. And he, uh, part of what he was trying to tease out was that, um, that the different persons of the Trinity, that their identities depend upon one another. So he says the father can't be a father unless he has the son. And the son can't be a son if he doesn't have a father. And the Holy Spirit is the eternal love that's existed between father and the son. It's, it's, it's that love personified. So I think what Michelle's bringing out through her question, which, which is a great question, is what does it mean then if the Holy Spirit is dwelling us, dwelling in us? It means, according to the New Testament and you can really swim around those, those few chapters in the Gospel of John from like 14 to 17 that we've been drawn into communion with God, into communion with his nature. We are, in, in, in what the New Testament would want to say, we're, we become participators in the nature of God. And that is part of what we're doing at Holy Communion. Every, every Sunday we're saying, You know, you're, you're in me and, and I'm in you and we're celebrating this mystery of our union together. And so many of the images um, of Christ in the church are union images, right? The vine and the branches, right? The, the chief cornerstone and the rest of the temple, right? Um, The, the bridegroom and bride who, who the, the bridegroom is waiting to be united with us forever. So there's four tastes of that in this life, but But the Holy Spirit coming to dwell in us is about us being wrapped into the life of God. Um, The main reason why we can't understand the Trinity fully? (laughs) No, um, so that's a good question. What's the main reason why we can't understand the Trinity fully? Um, I think it actually has to do with capacity. So like I was trying to say... When a finite thing tries to understand an infinite thing, or when you try to pour the, the ocean into a bucket of water, um, there's, there's actually like a capacity issue there. So um, we, we, we are grateful for the information we have. In fact, our, our songs are filled with the information we have because these mysteries are, are things that draw us up into worship. But I think the idea is that we're finite, we're creatures, and therefore we can't perceive God fully because God is infinite. Yeah. Yeah, one or two more. Yeah, Mike. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, so she asked, why does, it, why does it sometimes seems like there's a delay between the filling of the Holy Spirit and following Jesus? I think the first thing I would say is that I feel like the Pentecost example is unique because that's the definitive moment in, in history where the kind of new covenant uh, outpouring of the Spirit happens. Um, but I, I do think that there are other examples in the book of Acts where it seems like the Holy Spirit comes like at baptism Sometimes, like before, like in in Acts chapter ten, um, when the first Gentiles come to faith and they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they speak in tongues, and then after that, the apostles are like, "Well, we should baptize them because they have the Holy Spirit, right?" And then, and then sometimes it seems like there's a delay, you know, after after baptism. And um, I would just say, theologically speaking, um, in 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 uh, in the rest of the New Testament outside of the book of Acts, which is a, a, there's a lot of historic reasons for for all those manifestations of the Spirit. Um, I think theologically speaking, the reception of the Holy Spirit um, is supposed to coincide with lively faith. Like the first time that you put your faith in Jesus, if you start to experience something like what we call like a personal relationship with God, and and I actually like that language, um, but it's right Southern Christian language, a personal relationship with God. Well, those relational dynamics you're feeling come from the Holy Spirit. Right? If you if you feel yourself empowered for mission because Jesus said to his church, I will be with you always until the very end of the age. How did Jesus make good on that promise? Because he's given you the Holy Spirit to be able to fulfill his mission. I do think at times if people have never encountered God and these these re, this relational language is completely foreign to them, it could be that they that they didn't know the Lord before, you know? So I think sometimes that happens. And then I also think um And one of my favorite images is uh, from a friend of mine named Carter, who talks about fresh stirrings of the Holy Spirit in our life. And he uses the analogy of chocolate milk, um, where you put the Hershey syrup in, and then after a while, it kind of sinks to the bottom, and you stir it up again. And then all of a sudden, it's, it's all chocolatey again. And I think we've all had those times in our lives where we're like, man, God feels distant again, that closeness that I once had, that empowerment that I once felt, and we need the Holy Spirit to be stirred up afresh in us. So that's that's a that's a brief answer to a complex question. Yeah. Last question. Great question. Yeah. 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 So I, I do think scripture gives us guidance on that. Um, I don't think it's like a dogmatic issue. Um, we do see a couple of places in scripture where prayer is directed to Jesus. Um, like, like, at, like for Stephen at his martyrdom, uh, directs his prayer to Jesus. Um, but um, generally speaking in scripture and, and down through the history of the church, we talk about praying to the father through the son in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we pray to the Father through the Son. So the reason why I can talk to you, the reason why I have the boldness to even come before your throne right now is because of the shed blood of Jesus. So I'm coming to you through the merits, through the mediation of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit, we trust that God, having wrapped us into communion with himself, is stirring up by his Holy Spirit those dynamics where he's empowering our prayers to him. So... I think that's that's generally the case, although um, you know we don't, uh, you know sometimes um, even you know the very famous prayer in the Eastern Orthodox Church, right? um, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. That's you know very famous prayer in the history of the church, and there are to say, come Holy Spirit. That's a very historic prayer in the church. That's a prayer to the Holy Spirit. So. Um, We can pray to all three members, to all three persons, but, um, but that general pattern is that we pray to the Father, through the Son, in the Holy Spirit. And let's do that right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, that you are the source, you are the creator, you are the transcendent one who started everything from the outside. And we thank you that we're able to call you Abba, Daddy, that we're able to come to you despite our sin because we trust that we've been washed clean by what you've done, not because we have a, a bunch of confidence in ourselves, but because we're trying to have confidence in your promises, trying to have confidence in the gospel. And so, as, as Hebrews says, with, with, our, with our brother, Jesus, we come to you. And we also ask that you would help us this morning to worship you in spirit and in truth, to pray to you in spirit and in truth. So empower us this morning. teach us more who you are, Lord, would we stand in awe? Lord, we don't we don't want to be lazy. we want to we want to know what you've revealed of yourself, but but we also don't want to be presumptuous. So, Lord, would you make us like the seraphim in Isaiah 6 who, who stand with two of their wings covering their, covering their eyes and two of their wings covering their mouths and they're flying around your throne. Lord, would, would you give us that kind of holy awe and reverence for who you are? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.